your head out of the clouds Get your feet back on the ground Get stuck into pop culture We'd stick around Hello there and welcome to Stick Around The podcast that's the subject of a controversial new documentary The unbearable weight of a bunch of geniuses tacking to each other over Skype which is, of course, funded and made by us. Brought to you by Salisbury Cathedral and Peter Express Woking. We've got your back, bro. You're here for... <laughs> uh, stick around episode 142. That's right, I did some research. Um, I'm here... No, you didn't. We just crashed for three times, and at some point during that we mentioned it. Stop breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> uh, I'm here with general expert David Peeling. Hello there. Uh, with general expert Clive Fisher. Ahoy! And general expert Michael Johnson. Yo. I'm Alex Wayne, probably a general expert. How is everybody? Canny. Canny, right, yeah, to North East. For anybody anybody else who's not from the North East, that is Mackham for all right. Um, (laughs) Okay. Um, Dave Dave Pinning, want to maybe answer in a... um, (laughs) Colloquial term? No. Was that a no? Okay, (laughs) right, okay. Um, Clive, have you got any Swiss term you can use for how well you're feeling? It's got my good. Okay. That's Swiss for I'm all right, mate. Um, Well, not really. No, it's for for canny. Swiss for canny. Is it? Right. (laughs) Yeah, it is, yeah. Uh, We're relating everything back to that now. Okay. Let's get this one kicked off by going back to a man who hasn't been on the podcast for a few uh, months, months Ooh. perhaps, all the way from yes. all the way from the big smoke. Dave <laughs> Peeling, what have you got? Well, hello there, everyone. Um, thanks for having me back. Um, I wanted to talk today about uh, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's uh, documentary about the Vietnam War. Um, it's a TV miniseries. You can find it here on Netflix. Uh, it's a series set over 10 episodes and comes in at just over 18 hours in length. So it's it's not for the faint of heart um, or time poor. And it's, the, uh, it's a story of uh, the, US's in, the US's involvement in a conflict in, in Southeast Asia. Um, and the... Um, uh, and and the impacts that that's then had uh, in in both the US and in Vietnam thereafter. Um, the series starts in kind of eighteen fifty eight with the French getting involved in Vietnam, and it it moves on from there. And um, it tells the story on of both uh, a kind of uh, strategic and geopolitical basis with. Um, declassified audio recordings from inside the Oval Office of the Presidents at the time that decisions were being taken around the Vietnam War, uh, first-hand accounts from soldiers on both sides of, um, of uh, uh, kind of Vietnam, uh, Vietnamese politics, as well as uh, interviews with uh, soldiers from both sides. And it is presented here in um, just a staggering amount of uh of of detail and, and uh, incredible um, perform well not performances but in, incredibly revealing and well directed uh, interviews. 
the series is is chronological, um, and as I say, it runs these stories uh, alongside each other. So there'll be an interview with uh, a Viet Cong uh, fighter um, at this uh, kind of and the impacts on them of a decision that you hear being taken by Lyndon Johnson or someone in, in the Oval Office. The programme is, it's, it's just extraordinary. It's not a thing, it's not a kind of conflict or anything or situation that I felt like I had a particularly deep understanding of other than um, the soundtrack. And um, it, it, this, this, this documentary has an incredibly well-balanced uh, take on the on the whole site on the whole um, the whole undertaking. It's it starts with this kind of back look to explain kind of American overconfidence and misunderstanding of the history of the of the area before they got involved. But it it doesn't uh, it doesn't kind of pull any punches in understanding in trying to understand what happened in the Oval Office and with, with uh, American administrations when they were then when they were sending troops over to Vietnam. Um, but it is an incredibly it is an incredibly well balanced documentary, as I say. It it doesn't uh, come across as any kind of massive just outright condemnation. It's more a, a lamentation on kind of terrible out outcomes of of decisions, at least at the start, taken in good faith, but were obviously very quickly bad ones. The impact of that is very clearly shown in these first-hand encounters with, with men and women that were that were there in country fighting, uh, or having their kind of towns and cities ripped apart by the fighting. It's it, it's incredible to think that it was a war that is kind of now, you know now in the history books when you see interviews with people. That were only filmed in the last couple of years, who are quite obviously middle-aged, relatively youthful people who have had to live with some of the incredible traumas that are described in this in this uh, documentary. Some really kind of thing, some some excellent kind of things that have stuck out from uh, the show as I've watched it include um, recollections of a U.S. Marine who had spent 13 months accidentally ending up in basically every single um hot spot over that 13 months um shell shocked pulling his kind of friends dead bodies out of uh, um out of ravines to get them back to their families returning from his end of his tour in 1968 and then not being able to get a taxi from boston logan airport because he was black and um the story of a female Viet Cong fighter who cleared out a room of um, of American soldiers with her AK-47 and just sits there looking like a lovely old granny and you, it's just an incredible story of just what what um, what war can do and the kind of situations it puts people in uh, as I say with the with the incredible first hand interviews that are, are dotted throughout this series and tie the massive um, the massive uh, impacts of the of the war and massive decisions to individual circumstances. Um, you see the story from both sides in a very non-judgmental way. Uh, you understand the failings of both sides in, in a kind of series of decisions they made, but also obviously without uh, a heavy, without any kind of 
uh, virtue signaling there are obviously lots of lessons and uh, and situations that are pointed out here that have then re-arisen in subsequent kind of decisions to go to war and it's it's uh, a really beautiful well-made very thoughtful heart-moving documentary uh, it's opened my mind to a whole bunch of things that I knew very little about um, and every single episode leaves you leaves you moved by the end of it um, as I say it's I mean, it had. It, there's a lot of things to cover. It was a ten-year war, and hundreds of thousands of people died. So there's lots of things to kind of talk about, um, and its scale is therefore massive. And if there was any one criticism, criticism, it's that it is a lot to take in. Eight, Eighteen hours, you know, arguably is not enough time to tell the full story. But perhaps it could have. Each episode could have been more um, kind of not streamlined, but perhaps um, perhaps the portioning could have been divvied up a little bit better because uh, a one hour 40 kind of episode runtime for for quite a lot of the episodes is is quite intense um, but I, I hardly recommend this to anyone that has any interest in, in good documentary making I, th- I thought it was absolutely absolutely superb this has been on my uh, Netflix list for probably maybe even years or as long as it's been on Netflix anyway because I've heard before that this was, um, you know, really, really good. Uh, but I've got to admit that it probably is the runtime that's put me off this. Um, did you find? Uh, do you find yourself put that putting you off to start with as well, or did you just jump right into it? Yeah. So it's been so I, it was made in 2017. I'm not sure when it first came to Netflix, but uh, yeah, as you say, it's been around for a couple of years, uh, and it's been on my list for for a while. Uh, I just had an e- I had an evening when I knew that I would have some. To have some time, and I kind of I pressed play on the first episode with a bit of a gulp, not really sure that I wanted to dedicate this much time to well anything. Um, but I did find myself hooked. I was I was properly engrossed um, from from the start. So um, I have I have made rapid pro- progress through it since then. It's I mean it's one of those parts of history that is heavily documented to an extent, but. <gasps> You wonder how accurately it's been documented, and I've heard that this one is, you know, very much tell it like it is. Um, as I mean, if you, if you, I know you said you hadn't watched as much on it before, but had you seen any? Have you read much on the Vietnam War? I feel like you maybe have. So I feel like I've probably got down. I've gone down Wikipedia kind of rabbit holes on it mm-hmm. from time to time, and, and and things like that, but. No, it's not. I mean, I feel like lots of people are, or at least consider themselves to be familiar with the kind of the happenings in the Second World War, broadly speaking, like, you know, timelines at at the very least and kind of names of big figures and and things like that. But with Vietnam, I know much of that. I mean, part of that is because of the countries involved, of course, but um, also as, as this documentary shows by looking at the um, anti-war protests and the civil rights uh, issues that were going on in America at exactly the same time were entirely kind of intertwined with, um, you know, with the situation in Vietnam, certainly from the from US troops perspective. There are obviously much bigger kind of stories here and much bigger lessons and things to pay attention to that still kind of, you know, still have an effect on us today. Um, and... I think part of what makes this such a good documentary makes it so engrossing 
for me personally, perhaps, is that I had less of a understanding of the way that it happened. So I'm not hearing things that I've heard before anywhere. Uh, and it can make some of the things then seem very shocking. And I don't know how it's difficult to tell without having seen other stuff before, whether that stuff is then equally as shocking to someone who might have seen a documentary somewhere else on it. Mm-hmm. Um, or whether it's Ken Burns and Linovic's storytelling and direction and, and the script that um, gives it that heft. But uh, yeah, it's I, th- I think if you've not, then I don't think that is it. It's absolutely not. If you've not seen anything about it, you don't know very much about it other than Full Metal Jacket, then I think you've got, uh, y- you shouldn't feel intimidated by that um, going into it. Funnily enough, I've got a feeling that Full Metal Jacket might have been filmed where you live now. I've got a feeling it was filmed. I'm not even joking. In Croydon, um, I will look that up. Definitely like, going to have that look that up. <laughs> it was definitely filmed somewhere I mean, it's in London. Rough here, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Michael. Um, had, well, first of all, have you seen this series? And secondly, do you have an interest in the Vietnam War? Well, yeah, I think obviously as a highly notable event in uh, geopolitics, then yeah. Undoubtedly, and I've seen the first two episodes. I saw them when they aired on the BBC. Okay. Um, but I just, I just didn't manage to keep up the momentum with it. But the impression I got from it is very much chimes with a lot of what Dave said, and uh, it just seems immensely rich and uh, very strongly researched. Obviously, um, and yeah, I just need to. So you talked about the time and the commitment. I just need to find that to really plunge back into it because it seems like. I've seen a lot of people say it's really one of the essential documentary series of the last few years. Uh, I've just researched it. it. wasn't Croydon. It was Isle of Dogs. <laughs> so uh, there you go. Um, yeah, they're all yeah, Isle of Dogs. <laughs> East London. Um, Clive, any interest? I thought, in you meant that, I thought you meant Isle of Dogs was filmed in Croydon, though. Oh right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, wouldn't have, that wouldn't really have made sense since it's animated. But yeah. <laughs> Clive, any interest in this? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Again, the the time thing is going to be an issue but um yeah i'm super interested in the vietnam war and don't know all that much about it and obviously i went to vietnam this year so that's what i thought yeah be good to in a way it would have been good to watch this before i went probably but um yeah i i I, i'm really interested in it and as someone who's not massively into war in general it is probably the one that i'm the most (laughs) not massively (laughs) into it (laughs) so so like fucking a partial pacifist uh, a partial pacifist, yeah. Uh, right, well, um, from one partial pacif- pacifist to an absolute fascist, uh, <laughs> Michael Johnson, what have you got for us? Poss- possibly the best introduction I've ever had. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Finally, someone speaks the truth. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to talk briefly about uh, the new Chris Morris film, The Dare Shall Come. Um, we've already had some references to uh, questionable American decision-making on this podcast, so let's delve into some more of that. Um, it's Morris's first film since uh, 2010's Four Lions. Which Morrissey? That's what I heard as well. Mor- Morrissey's first film. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, speaking of fascism. Um, yeah, uh, his first film since 2010's Four Lions, which in my opinion is the best film of uh, comedy film, sorry, of this decade. Similar subject matter in some ways, um, focusing on terrorism. When I think right now, that's not one of the compared to some points in the past, it's not one of the um, I guess hot topics for um, 
you know, certain dissections in film and the like. But uh, Morris is stuck with it. Specifically this time, he's targeting um, the how ludicrous uh, CIA sting operations on terrorists in America have been. Uh, the film's build as being based on 100 true stories, but it's chiefly based on the story of the Liberty City 7, which were um, a small cult-like group from Miami, much like the, uh, the cult at the centre of this film, who... The FBI managed to, um, they, by posing as Al-Qaeda, they got them to hand over supposed plans that they had to uh, ride into Chicago on horseback and collapse the Sears Tower, uh, <laughs> even though they didn't have any any means whatsoever of, uh, of doing that. So I think that was Morris's main insp- inspiration in writing this. Uh, written with uh, Jesse Armstrong of Peep Show, Veep and Succession writing fame. Uh, so as expected, a lot of the humour comes from very zippy dialogue. There's a lot of blink and you'll miss it, sort of lines, things that you need to be tuned in to really pick up on. Um, I found myself chortling throughout with that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of visual gags as well. The uh, the cult, which is um, led by the character of Moses Al-Shabazz, played, played by uh, Marchant Davis, uh, Worships a number of different idols, from uh, Allah to Black Santa, as they call call him. <laughs> uh, and one of the, one of the gags I'm talking about is if if like it's the sort of thing where if, if you're not paying attention you won't notice it. In the background, at one point, uh, Al Shabazz's wife is uh, blacking up a model of Santa while something else is going on. Uh, <laughs> it's quite hilarious. Um, one of the things I like about Morris is that he do, also doesn't shy away from slapstick at times and physical humour. Um, where four lions have the squat jog, uh, this film has the duck walk, which is uh, another notable <laughs> highlight. Uh, much of, as you expect from all of Morris's work, really, much of the satire is absolutely uh, stinging. It's, I mean, some people felt that this wasn't as strong as some of his work, but I thought it was um, on point purely because it felt like it was targeted at the right things, and I, I found it very funny throughout. Um, it stars Anna Kendrick as well, which I never thought would be the case in a Chris Morris film. I think the whole thing compared to Four Lions feels a lot more American in a way. It looks uh, sleeker on screen. Um, it just feels like a different sort of tone. Four Lions felt like that sort of typical cult British comedy film. So that's an interesting sort of comparison, I think. It does have a slightly different feel, even though it does come across as being notably... Morris and Armstrong, to me at least. Uh, also, I've got to mention uh, Kevan Novak, who obviously starred in uh, <laughs> Four Lions as well. Uh, really good in this as um, a paedophile informant, uh, which really, I think, uh, he, he's utilised throughout to really expose some of the, uh, the hypocrisy and uh, moral treachery of the American security services. Uh, I think Four Lions. I, I mean, I, I know I keep comparing it to Four Lions, but I think it's it's quite valid. It's quite um, you need to really, I think, in a way, even though there's a big gap between the two films in time. Uh, Four Lions ended with a nice uh, little ha- like reel of um, humorous extras at the end during its credits. I thought one of the saddest and darkest bits of the whole satire in the day shall come was uh, right at the end where it's ca- um, it's. In the style of a lot of films, the the way in which the careers of all of the um, 
members of the secu security services in the film blossom despite the increasing amount of farce involved as the film goes on in the actual uh, sting operation and I think that was that's really cutting point made by uh, Morris and sort of exposes the way that not just in this field but in a lot it kind of feels like people just bluster their way up to the top in their careers uh, and I think you see a lot of examples of that every day wherever you look I think we, we seem to see it more and more in the news each and every day so in some ways even though I thought this as I said, this was quite an interesting eyebrow raising sort of topic for Morris to still be looking at in 2019 because uh, I think it's more of a Bush era sort of uh, concern it still has a lot of uh, relevance to a lot of things that are going on in society uh, and I thought it was very sharply observed. I think some people seem to think that it wasn't a subject that Morris should be writing about, which I think just goes to prove that things never seem to change with his writing. Uh, he's, he's never shied away from tackling the darkest and most controversial topics, and it seems people's capacity to be outraged and apparently offended by that um, isn't any, hasn't dimmed any more in 2019 than it had in 1999. Uh, and I think that shows that he's still He's still a very vital satirist. Um, if he's going to be making one film every eight years, then I'm not sure how many more, if any, we're going to see from him. But uh, as long as he's making things, I'll always be first in line to see them. Mm. I I, uh, I saw this one with Michael as well. Um, really can't add much to that. It was I really enjoyed it. Probably wasn't quite as um, memorable as Four Lions, but... Um, Extremely valid, all the same, and hilarious. Um, I thought, I, I mean, he's already mentioned upon it there, but um, Kay Van Novak is, despite being a, you know, a, almost a peripheral part for a lot of the film, absolutely st st scene stealing whenever he can. Um, probably that's not, not, can't be an attractive role as well. Uh, <laughs> a paedophile snitch. I mean, um, it, it, it takes a special kind of performer to do that. Uh, I'd like to see more of him, really. Um, I think Morris... I think you touched upon this, Michael. The It almost feels a little bit out of date in the sense that we've kind of moved on from the Bush era kind of Patriot Act um, games, but it yeah. undoubtedly still happens, and um, it shouldn't be forgotten about. Um I would like to see Morris be more active, like you said. I I, had, I wasn't aware that it had been eight years, but um, yeah. It, I mean, I'd like even if it's not in films, I'd like to see him be more active with with TV. But, um, but yeah, I really enjoyed this. It's um, I can't really add a lot more than that. Has, has anybody else seen this at all? No, I'd like to though. It's yeah, I love Chris Morris's stuff. So although I've not seen Four Lines either, really, oh wow, TV stuff. that's that's um, a big hole. That you got to see that, Clive. I know, I know. <laughs> I'll watch it. Uh, no, I've, I've not seen it yet. Um, I have seen Four Lines. I do love uh, Chris Morris and his work. But uh, it's, yeah, very, very limited release around here, it would appear. Really? Yeah. Okay. See, funnily enough, it, it actually made its way to um, Cineworld around here, which I couldn't have been more surprised about. I thought we'd have to go and, you know, as far as Newcastle to see this one. Um I imagine it's probably had its run at this point, though. You probably will struggle to find it now. But uh, No, sure, now, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it's, it's not as essential. I think you'll agree with this, Michael. It's not as essential viewing as Four Lions, um, but it's 
it's just excellent. I mean, has he ever done anything that's disappointed? I can't think of anything anyway. Uh, not for me. Some people don't like jam, which is very dark and uh, a certain type of comedy, but I'm a big fan of that as well. So Yeah, I love that. I, I think Phil Collins might have been disappointed by some of his brass eye work. But... <laughs> <laughs> big time. Right, okay. Clive, you've got a choice. Do you want to go next or do you want to go last? Um, I'll go next. I don't want to go last. That seems like a lot of pressure. <laughs> okay, well, with absolutely no pressure whatsoever to deliver a banging <laughs> review. Uh, Clive. I mean, you just you just put the pressure on there by saying it's going to be banging. Oh, did I? Right. But, uh, uh, okay, go. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Clive. Um, I'm going to do my top five of another year. I don't know if I'm... I'm carrying on doing this for a bit it's 1967 we're up to and i'm just going to read the reviews i've written on the uh, rate your music which maybe i've not looked at them yet uh, this is the first time looking at them since writing them so they may be cringe inducing i don't know uh, but i'll be part of the fun because <laughs> sometimes i write sometimes i write reviews and i'm just like oh i need to review this because it you know it's just to catalogue it and sometimes i write reviews and think i'm going to get all artsy in the review so we'll see what happens anyway so the top five are, uh, this is Rate Your Music, so people's uh, rate, rate music, as it suggests, and um, it like corroborates the ratings, I don't know if that's the right word, <coughs> uh, to make a top five. And the top five in 67, as voted by the community on there, are so- Songs of Leonard Cohen by Leonard Cohen, and number five. Number four, The Jimi Hendrix Experience, Are You Experienced? Number three, The Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Number two, The Doors, The Doors. And number one, Velvet Underground and Nico, the Velvet Underground and Nico. A year for, not a year for um, very sort of challenging album titles, I'd have to say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> everyone's either gone for self-titled or songs of Leonard Cohen, which, I mean, well done, at least he's not just called it Leonard Cohen, but still, hardly creative. Um, let's go and read, the, so I'll try to get them up on tabs. I see, uh, right, I we'll see start- the uh, jazz has gone as well. Yeah, the jazz has disappeared off the list. <laughs> yeah. Right, we're starting. Uh, we're starting with the first one on. I've gone through the doors first, which I think comes in at number five for me. It's my least favourite of them. Um, sure, I'm not as big. I'm not as high on this one as a lot of people, but I can totally see why it gets the acclaim it gets. It's dark, experimental, full of instrumental sections, and creates a completely unique atmosphere. I don't find it super enjoyable, but I can appreciate the artistry behind it. Uh, I've given this an eight. I like to give things really arbitrary ratings as well. I've given this an 8.4 out of 10. Um, <laughs> next up, we've got... I'm going to try and do it in order of, of the way I like them. Although it's a bit of a gamble. And is that different from Ooh. your ratings? Because that would be really <laughs> arbitrary. <laughs> no, the order the order it does go in rating order. However, I think I've given about three of them 9.2. So it <laughs> Puts me in a problematic position. But I'm just going to open up Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band next. See what that says. Uh, I've given this a oh, it's nine point one. This um, it's quite a short review. The production is great and keeps things interesting. There's a fair few brilliant songs, and even the ones I usually hate (brackets when I'm 64) somehow work in this jolly, slightly whimsical context. Um, I'm going to expand on that a little bit. This is probably my favourite Beatles album so far. It seems very tight. Um, it's just good fun. It's hard to make an album that is positive and good fun uh, not annoying, and I think this album manages it. Um, yeah, it's like I say, it's my favorite. I'm not a massive fan of the Beatles, and whenever I say that, 
it sounds like I say, I think they're shit. I don't. <laughs> I'm just not as massive a fan as some people are. Um, I just think their vocals are a bit bland. That's my main complaint. Um, but the, there's loads of interesting stuff going on here besides the vocals. And they've, yeah. As we mentioned last time with Revolver, they've started using the studio more as an instrument. Um, yeah, so this is my favourite one so far. Um, and let's open up Are You Experienced next. Uh, I really liked this album. And I've given it an arbitrary rating of... The tension is unbearable. Nine. Nine out of ten. That's not arbitrary. That's kind of a reasonable normal. Um, ooh, I've well, got it's a clearly not 9.1, is it? No, it's not, it's not the same. <laughs> it's definitely not 8.9. <laughs> so, I mean, what else <laughs> <laughs> Mitch Mitchell's drums and Hendrick's guitar go, as well, go well together to create a rock and roll whirlwind, unlike anything before or since. It feels a little compilation-y with the inconsistent production between the songs. But when the songs are this good and energetic, does it really matter? Rhetorical question there. Um, and also, I've put a note there, I, re I reviewed the US version because it has Purple Haze on it, and who wouldn't review the album with Purple Haze on it? An idiot. Um, <laughs> there's also Michael Johnson's review down here, which I could read, but I'm not getting Michael. Oh, that would be quite old, that. Very <laughs> old. It is. It's from 2010. <laughs> yeah, exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, this is yeah. It's really, really good. It does feel like I think you mentioned this as well, Michael, in your review. It does feel a bit compilation. -y. It doesn't feel like it has a theme or anything. I think, and I think that's yeah. partly because it, everything seems to have been recorded in a different studio. It's kind of a single, and the production on the stuff sounds pretty disjointed. None of it sounds terrible, but um, plus the fact yeah, that you've it, got these different versions and everything, I think that takes yeah. away some mystique from an album, which is obviously obviously should be a, should be sequenced by design and everything like that. To me, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, but because the songs are that good, it does still work. Mm -hmm. uh, the Velvet Underground and Nico by the Velvet Underground and Nico. Oh, bloody hell, I've written a long one here. Um, I disagree with some of the, this album was super influential, but isn't that great when listened to outside of that context talk? I review things in terms of how much I enjoy them as opposed to any talk about how much influence they've had, etc. Brackets, because I simply don't know enough about music history to go into that kind of stuff. End bracket. However... With this album, the influence is impossible to ignore and a crucial part of the listening experience. I hear the beginnings of so many of the genres I listen to here that it's remarkable. The fact I can hear it without even trying is even more remarkable. Um, it's an album of artistic freedom above crowd-pleasing and yet somehow it's incredibly enjoyable. The final song, European Sun Aside, this stuff is all super enjoyable and just not just on a surface level, just on a surface level and it conjures up image, images and moods that make it rather unforgettable. Yeah, I'm waffling. <laughs> but I'm a fan. Um, yeah, this one really works. And this is in contrast to, I'll, we'll see if we carry on doing this, but the, the one in 1968, White Heat, something light. Do you remember what it's called, Michael? Help me out. Uh, white Light, White Heat, yeah. White Light, Heat, White Heat, that's close. Uh, I don't like that. I don't like it. Um, Do you not? And it's, it, it's no. annoying because everyone's raving about it. No, I, I really struggle to listen to it. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas this it works. It just has song structures. That one's just a bit more... It's a bit more out there, I think, and it's maybe just a bit too out there. And I never thought I'd say that. And it made me a bit sad that I'd found something that was too out there, but I think it just might be. It might be the fact... I think it might be one of those when I go back to it, I'll get it more. It just needed that initial... It is different know, to but, this album, definitely. Yeah. But. It's definitely much more experimental. Um, and I think... Oh, no, the song's Elena Cohen. I've not ever got a review on that one because I've been. it's the song that I've listened to, an album that I've been listening to for like 10 years because my dad introduced me to it. Um, yeah, it's brilliant. That's my favourite one of the five. Um, I just think Elena Cohen's got this... He's 
up there with Bob Dylan of my favourite lyricists. I'd say they're my top two, and I don't know who I'd put at number three. But um, yeah, it's just it's like a it's a musical poem of an album, really, and it has it's really well accentuated by his quite simple sort of. Uh, Spanish or nylon string guitar playing um, and just the way he sings is like not uh, very conventional at all uh, but it works perfectly in terms of getting across the words that he's saying in a similar way to Dylan I think um, it makes you pay more attention to his lyrics and that's a good thing when the lyrics are as good as they are there yeah we've got obviously songs like Suzanne, Suzanne uh, So Long Marianne all the classics um, all I think there's ten, 10 songs on there they're just all great and with the sort of minimalistic nature of them, it's really, really impressive. And yeah, one of my favourite songwriters, so that would be my favourite. Um, but yeah, a, a, another really strong year. Does anyone else have any comments on these albums? Surely Michael Johnson must. That's correct, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, well, I've, first off, I've never heard songs of Leonard Cohen, which might surprise oh, get you. get on that. That yeah. does surprise me. I have heard some Leonard Cohen, but for whatever reason, it never... Never grabbed me in particular, apart from. You should try. Um, if you're like me, I don't get in. I'm not into his later stuff as much, but the early stuff where it is just him and an acoustic guitar, I really like. But yeah, that, that might not be the same That's the him, stuff so. that I've never been oh, grabbed okay. by. But I need to invest more time in it. I've never heard yeah. any of the songs on this album anyway, so I should definitely do that. Because yeah, I was going to say, um, apart from first we take Manhattan, which is a tune, but that's that's definitely later era. Uh, certainly very stylistically different, I think. Um, then uh, well uh, we've already covered a bit of what I thought about the Hendrix album uh, I'll reel out mm-hmm. one of my controversial opinions here oh. um, uh, Jimmy. well it's not really controversial but the, the, <laughs> I don't think the Jimi Hendrix experience one of the best British bands of all time <laughs> uh, I don't know <laughs> Well, Where are they all from? The other, t- the other two members of the band are British, and Hendrix obviously oh, okay. emerged as a musician while living in Britain. So, okay. that's that's my opinion. I'm sticking with it. Eh, I can see that. Yeah, uh, I mean, Mitch Mitchell is a massive part. I rave, I rave about him in my review, but he's a fabulous drummer. Yeah, exactly. He's so like unique. He's very just like I don't know. In a way, you'd say he's doing way too much, but in, with Hendrix, it really works. Yeah, um, I mean, and I think he's a big part of why it's good. Yeah, of course. Yeah, they're integ- integral to the uh, the band, even though Hendrix is iconic, and it's easy to get blinded by mm. that, obviously. Um, yeah, but I think I think the, their best work comes after this. But this album's still packed full of great songs. Uh, it's very long as well, isn't it? So it manages to maintain quite a bit of consistency, mm. I would say. So yeah, great album. Uh, Sergeant Pepper's. I don't think there's really anything left to say is the, about this album. Uh, it's probably the most vibrant and colourful of these albums that we're mentioning here uh, of the ones I've heard at least uh, well I know for a fact that the Leonard Cordons is not vibrant <laughs> or colourful um, no it's not yeah so I mean uh, I, again I think my favourite Beatles work comes after this album but uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting album A Day in the Life is one of my favourite Beatles songs for sure yeah it's a good song uh, um, The Doors this is an album I only heard a few years ago I heard it a lot later than all the other classics if you like it was an album which was always, for years, it was the highest rated album on Rate Your Music that I'd never heard. And I just, okay. for some reason, I never listened to it. But when I did, I'm actually a really big fan of this. It's got such a dark, brooding atmosphere. I love mm-hmm. the organ on it, which is totally different to a lot of bands of the era. Um, all the well known tracks are absolutely amazing. Yeah, I haven't actually checked out any other doors, really, but 
this is an excellent debut album, uh, love it. But the right album is at number one on the list, I think, because The Velvet Underground and Nico is one of my favourite albums of all time. Absolutely towering album. Uh, you mentioned the influence of it, Clive. I think one of the quotes, I can't remember who it's attributed to, if anyone knows, actually. But um, I think the quote is, when it first came out, only 100 people heard it, but they all formed a band. And I think that's, <laughs> that sums up the, uh, the influence of it. Uh, lyrically, it was unlike anything else of the era, you know, Things about abuse, prostitution, drugs. Uh, it's I mean, it's it, it's a whole thing. It's very unlike. Like you listen to the five albums, and yeah, they, they are all quite different. But that's the one that sticks out as being like, oh, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like anything else I've heard up until this point. Like doing this thing. Yeah, of listening to yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think even within the um, within the album, it's quite diverse. Some of the instrumentation, uh, the Nico tracks, obviously quite a bit different to others. Um, yeah, and I was going to say like the the first three albums in particular are, are so different to each other. Um, I think all three are perfect. The first three albums. I know you mentioned you didn't like the second one so much, Clive. Uh, yeah. Second one's probably second one probably <laughs> is even more experimental and dirtier than this one. I think um, it is. It's yeah. really rough. Uh, but the, yeah, they're one of the absolutely one of the best bands of all time, in my opinion. Um, even though they've got a fairly small body of work, I guess, but it's so, so significant. I've had this album for over 10 years now, and I feel like it gets better every single time I listen to it, which is, you know, not... Um, it's not rarely I listen to it, at least a couple of times a year now, I would say. So, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, nothing more I can say about that. Absolutely superb album. Yeah, and unlike unlike the second one, I think it's, it is quite accessible. I think most people can listen to it and enjoy the songs because there's still there's some sort of... I don't know, I guess the structure or melody and stuff is yeah, for sure. some quite of the, strong in all of them. Yeah. yeah. So the second one loses a bit of that, I think. Yeah. It probably takes a lot more effort, and maybe I haven't put enough effort in. <laughs> well, yeah, it, just, it depends, doesn't it? Yeah, some of the songs yeah. on this are quite unusual on this one, but I think they are, yeah, they're still often very hooky, mm-hmm. uh, especially musically, like you said. Um, so, yeah, there's, uh, it's it, even though it sounds like it could be an album people would, would retreat from, I don't think once you hear it that is the case. Even though it did, as I say, it does. It has taken me quite a while to feel like I properly understand it. But that's always a great payoff with an album. Yeah, definitely. Right, fantastic stuff, Clive. Where, what year are you planning to carry this through till the modern day? Do you think these lists? Or? Well, I was I, <laughs> I was just thinking this today. If I do, I'm going to be doing this for the next like five years. Uh, but <laughs> I suppose I could do. I mean, it, it's, I'm quite. I'm enjoying. I'm definitely going to be carrying it through personally. Whether I carry it through onto the pod, I don't know. Mm, we'll see. I might well do because it's it's quite interesting. I'm looking I'm forward to the '90s. I think. I mean, that's quite a way off, but um... yeah, we're going to be t- <laughs> maybe in 2023. <laughs> I'm lo- I'm looking forward to the definitive list, therefore, of every album <laughs> ever on a uh, on a tenth of a point scale, which, which seems pretty pretty definitive to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't wait till that point either. Yeah, the top five when I've listened to all these top fives is going to be pretty definitive. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't. I think in my time on this, uh, there'll be, be about... three hundred albums in the top five, all tied on nine point four. Well, I've given actually three albums te- a ten, like an actual ten ten, um, wow. in my entire time on the site. So we'll see how many more join that. But yeah, so it's not many. <laughs> So, Hybrid Theory by Linkin Park was one of them, obviously. Uh, obviously. What, what, were the other, what were the other two? Um, something by Blink-182. <laughs> and 
Uh, James Blunt's debut. Right, excellent choices. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I just uh, can I just tell a, a well? Can I tell can I tell two superb Lou Reed stories since we discussed the Valve as, Underground? As long as they're superb, yes. Yeah, okay, I'm pretty sure I've told I'm pretty sure I've told one of them on the podcast before, but I'll do it again anyway. Um, I'll start with the other one. Uh, I always remember that uh, when you two had to pull out of headlining Glastonbury in 2010. Um, Gorillaz stepped in. Don't know if anyone remembers that. And, I do uh, remember that. Yeah. Yeah. On on the album they just released, Plastic Beach, they had uh, a song featuring Lou Reed, some kind of nature, and he actually came out at Glastonbury to perform it with them. And apparently, uh, and if you look at the pictures of him at, uh, doing that at Glastonbury, you can sort of see why. Apparently, a lot of people in the crowd didn't know he was and thought it was Fabio Capello. <laughs> 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 Which uh, you know would have been would have been interesting to see him strut out there with a the guitar, but yeah, uh, still England manager at the time, of course. It's worth mentioning. Uh, and the other one is that when Lou Reed died, um, someone I work with said, "I keep reading that he's like this really influential songwriter and uh, had so much influence on lots of people. You know, a really seminal artist. But didn't he only have that one song?" I was like, what? Turned out they'd confused him with Lou Baker of Mambo Number no. 5. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, who's got the greater legacy, though? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> and we're, I mean, we're all laughing because of the, 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 uh, the epic back catalogue of Lou Baker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. The fact that that was considered a great song is a, is a bit like <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one highly influential song, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, them's my Lou Reed anecdotes. Well, they were suitab- suitably superb, Michael. Um, good. Well yeah. done. Glad to live up to the hype. Um, right, well, to r- round off today, uh, that's left with me. Um, I'm going to be talking about a film I saw at the cinema roughly two weeks ago now um, being called a sleeper hit or at least on um, the other side of the the Atlantic uh, it's called the Peanut Butter Falcon um, it's probably best described as a kind of uh, light comedy drama um, starring Shia LaBeouf uh, Zach Gottsagen Dakota Johnson John Hawkes Bruce Stern uh, Thomas Hayden Church and various cameos it uh, tells the story of a young man with Down syndrome who has been forced to live in a care home for the elderly because the state can't provide him with adequate care. Um, he escapes this care home uh, to try and go to wrestling school. Um, he's been consistent for years and years. He's been watching the same video or VHS. Um, it, this film is set loosely in the early nineties. Uh, been watching the same VHS about um, the Saltwater Redneck who's his favourite wrestler who runs a wrestling school out of North Carolina. And he goes on an epic journey to, to get there, really, aided by Shia LaBeouf's character, who is escaping um, some rather angry rednecks. Um, it's directed by two people called Tyler Nielsen and Michael Swartz. It's quite an interesting story as to how they even made this. Um, they're both kind of passionate supporters of getting um, disabled people on screen uh, in representative roles, which... You know, often they don't get, which usually some Hollywood actor just uh, or 
Ricky Gervais doing some stupid impression. Um, they actually went along to a kind of acting camp for people with Down syndrome, and they got really taken by uh, Zach Gottsagen, who just said, you know, please write me a film. So they did. Um, what I found really refreshing about this is, um, well, f- first of all, it's an excellent film, by the way. You, you could have had this as a, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to have had a person with Down syndrome. I mean, this could have just been a, maybe a kid who's in care who really wants to go to wrestling school. But um, what I found really refreshing is how absolutely unmelodramatic this film is. Um, how it absolutely never patronises uh, Zach. It never um, never really makes too much of a thing of his condition, although it is a an intrinsic part of the story. His social worker, played by Dakota Johnson, is trying to find him, trying to bring him back into care because she's really worried about him. Uh, but Shia LaBeouf's character um, is, is more interested in seeing what he can do rather than what he can't. Um, the film is... It, it follows a fairly familiar mould in the sense that it's a kind of almost a, a buddy comedy with um, kind of illusions of Mark Twain. So they're, they're travelling purely on the water along um, along kind of the East Coast on their way to North Carolina. And um, the visuals are absolutely beautiful. The, the film has some excellent wrestling cameos, uh, not the least Mick Foley and Jake the Snake, um, to name a few. And... I think what really gripped me... I went to this with very low expectations. I'm not Shia LaBeouf's biggest fan. Um, but I have to say he was really good in this. Um, probably the first time I haven't found him immensely irritating. Uh, but but I went on the recommendation of somebody else. And it's probably the most pleasant surprise I've had of 2019. Um, it's feel good, unashamedly so. But um, I just felt it, it really... It really kind of nailed that kind of Mark Twain, Huckleberry Finn kind of modern day feel uh well well kind of crossing over into a subject matter which is quite important getting some representation on screen from people who just don't get to play even their own conditions most of the time um now i hadn't even heard of this before i had the recommendation so i'll forgive you all if you haven't but has anybody else heard of this at all no i haven't it sounds fascinating though i really need to go and watch it yeah no, I, I, when, when you uh, when you mentioned the title i thought you'd made it up not gonna lie Right. <laughs> no. No. Okay. Yeah. I mean, instantly, Clive. I thought you'd be somebody who'd enjoy this. Um, I know. You, if, tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you're a Huckleberry Finn fan. I am a Huckleberry Finn fan. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably my favourite book. <laughs> right. Well, there you go. I think you'll get a real kick out of the um, kind of the journey they go on. Um, certainly from a visual standpoint, and just kind of they're kind of living off the land. They're kind of fishing for the dinner. Um, and have you seen? Has anyone seen the film Kings of Summer? Nope. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's there's definitely vibes of that coming from this. Um, I think you'll oh, really cool. enjoy it. Um, and like I said, the film is refreshingly unpatronising. Um, I think there's a lot mm. of films which have very good intentions uh, when they're depicting disability, which you know just get it absolutely wrong. But really, this, I mean, I, I you know, I'm I don't suffer from Down syndrome. I don't know anyone who does personally. But certainly, the impression I got, and from what I've read about um, how the community was responded to this, and how charities have responded to this, it's the first time that it's really been put on screen. Obviously, it, it is a plot point, but it, it it's not the main thing. And mm-hmm. um, Zach um, Gottsagen just put put in it actually a really superb performance. 
it's not going to don't get me wrong. This is not. It's, it's probably not going to be one of those films that necessarily challenges uh, my top five of the year or anything like that. But um, I had an absolute blast watching this, and um, I think you can tell by the the diversity of the cast in terms of like how many relatively big names have got involved. For a, what I'm told was literally as little as you can pay a Hollywood actor to be in a film. Um, how how well this was taken. Um, and I, I look forward to hopefully seeing Zach Gottsagen in more th- things in the future. Cool. <clears throat> yeah, it sounds really interesting. This. I'm going to have to check it out. What was the name again? Um... Uh, the Peanut Butter Falcon, which is, incidentally, small spoiler, <laughs> the name of his wrestling character. So, Aha, uh-huh. okay. Um, I think, to be honest with you, the Saltwater Redneck as well was an, was an ec- is an excellent name for a, um, for a wrestler. Um Reminded me of Stone Cold Steve Austin's nickname, the Bionic Redneck. Um, <laughs> like I said, um, it was it was a pleasure to see Mick Foley in this as well, um, and Jake the Snake Roberts. But um, yeah, I, I, I just absolutely love this. Awesome, awesome, awesome! Uh, and did you say you saw this? This was on the cinema because I've not seen any posters for this. One. Uh, it probably isn't on anymore. It's um, it was okay, a couple of weeks ago I saw, but yeah, again, it was on yeah. at a mainstream cinema. From what I, I understand, oh. it's been it's been it's been called a sleeper hit in the sense that it opened in very few cinemas in America, and then it mm-hmm. through word of did mouth, really well. it you know yeah. it you know it grew and grew. I mean, according to its Wikipedia, it's made a box office of twenty point seven million dollars back on a six. Uh, million dollar budget which means it's washed well the industry term is it's washed washed its own face so apparently mm-hmm. generally speaking the budget of a film you can double it when you put in marketing on top of that and you know it's paid everything back in it's made a profit which is which is good to see really and um i don't know how it's done over here but it did make it into mainstream cinemas and it made it to teesside which is saying something <laughs> um i mean we've only just got you know dvds um and the internet, so <laughs> but we got this. Yeah. Okay. Good sign. Must have been doing all right then. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And like I said, I think you'd get a real kick out of this, especially. I mean, I, I would recommend it to Dave and Michael as well. But um, this is, you know, if they were writing a movie for Clive, this one would be right up your street. Yeah, it sounds like it. So I'll definitely need to watch it. Yeah. Cool. I think we're just doing a shorter one today, guys. Just one each. Uh, we ha- we are close to hitting our hour running time anyway, so we're going to leave it there. Unless anybody has something quick they would like to say. Um, I, mean, I don't know if I do. No, nope. don't know. I-, I went to see the Joker. Enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, so that was good. Joaquin Phoenix was superb. So, did you fall on the same side of the fence that me and Michael did then, or did you have have any oh, different uh, opinion? <laughs> what was that? Well, that was about the debate of. Um, like the way it portrayed mental health, or you mean just in terms of how good it was? Well, b- both, I suppose. I can't really remember what our opinions were, but um, yeah, I, I liked it. I didn't, I, I didn't absolutely love it, but I really liked it, and it did feel. Uh, what I really liked about it was that it didn't feel like a Marvel film, or I know it's not a Marvel film; it's a DC film, a superhero film, mm-hmm. um, and it almost made the thing seem like quite realistic, even though it was, you know, still with the Joker and his ridiculous makeup and all that stuff. Um, that was really good. Whacking Phoenix was just ridiculously good, and he always is. Um, so that was really great. Um, I can't remember specifically what the issues I had with it, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't absolutely love it like um, I know a lot of people have, but I suspect that's just because I'm not as invested in the Batman Joker franchise. Um, 
but I liked it as a as a thing on its own. Okay, cool. Dave, Dave, I don't know if you've seen the Joker film or not, but you're the last person to have an opinion on it. Have you seen it? I've not seen it, no, but I can have an opinion on it. Go ahead. Do it. Go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, it seems all right. <laughs> Heard it here first. That one's going on the poster. Uh, haven't seen it, but, you know, seems all right. Um, has anybody got any cultural plans for the rest of the weekend or this week? Cultural plans? Yes. Um what are you doing, on, Michael? Michael? I'm going to see Kit Tempest tonight. Ah. Oh, wow, yeah. that is cultural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Where, whereabouts are you seeing her? Boiler Shop in Newcastle, which is quite a big cool. venue, actually. So, sold out, apparently. Nice. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Um, the vast majority of people that I've explained uh, who Kit Tempest is to have looked at me like I'm the most pretentious sort of prick. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> But I won't ask know. you what your explanation was. <laughs> well, just, Did it just, involve the word kaleidoscopic? No, just the just the, t- <laughs> the, t- the phrase spoken word just uh, breaks people out in a sweat. Do you know what I mean? So, and they just they just think of the admittedly amazing scene in 22 Jump Street where Jonah Hill's character improvises some spoken word poetry. So that's most people's exposure to it, I think. I would love it. I would love it if, along with her own song, she did a cover of that. <laughs> <laughs> so would I. <laughs> Can I just I just wanted to say uh, that uh, at the start of the podcast I didn't, but I now uh, understand the walking reference, and I find it hilarious but appalling. <laughs> right, okay. I know the Pizza Express. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. just pizza. No, I still, pizza. I still don't get it. Uh, it's, you, it's worth looking up. Just look it up. Okay. Clara, if you, right. you, you'll get it. Uh, right. It'll anyway, make, it'll make you not sweat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're uh, flying over Clive's head. Any of these jokes, aren't they? So they are. Yeah, I'm just laughing along. But <laughs> you know that. You know when everyone's laughing and you automatically just laugh. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Then, well, <laughs> then you're horrified when they say, "Do you get like, it?" And you have to try. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, here's something that is going to make Clive sweat. I know he feels the pressure on this. Clive, Ooh. what time is it? It must be plug time! At StickAroundCast on Twitter. At StickAroundCast on... <laughs> I think it might be StickAround... Oh, fucking hell. It's something on Instagram. Look for StickAround. Um, StickAroundPodcast.com on the interwebs for every single episode because you can only get the last hundred episodes on whatever thing you've got because it seems to cut them off. Apparently there's a way to stop that happening, but I'll have to investigate. Uh, but yeah, go on the website. They're all there. Find us on pretty much any old podcast streaming thing, iTunes, whatever. Give us five-star reviews on iTunes because people will listen to it more if you do that. That's happened every time someone has given us a five-star review. All three times that's happened. <laughs> um, we've seen a significant <laughs> spike in figures. Uh, I think it might be more than three. It might be being... Might be five. Um, I'd like to give it a four point nine, but <laughs> yeah, that's why I haven't rated it. Yeah, <laughs> fucking put him in a box, Apple. I'll <laughs> um, <laughs> have my own rating, rating system. You can. What else have we got? We've got other stuff. I feel like poor effort. Uh, Facebook.com slash stick around. We're on that as well. Um, we're yeah, we'll be back hopefully in about a week's time with. A standard episode, because we don't do games and stuff anymore. We just do it all at once, because yeah. we're lovely like that. 
Um, also, I'm going to plug my album here because I'm a knobhead. Um, I've released an album, I, The Idle Owl in a Musical Sphere. It's called Above the Trees. It took me ages. Give it a listen. It's on Spotify and all, all the cool stuff. If you listen to it on Spotify, I get loads of money. I'm literally raking it in, guys. I've had um, 300 listens and I've got £1.50 in the bank. Do you get what do you what do you get from Apple Music? Is it the same? Um, same. No, this is uh, this is adding them all together. Yeah, oh, right, I've added okay. up my I've added up my tally, and I've, so far I've made one pound six. I think it's one pound fifty six from the album. So that's Ooh, good. Interesting. Yeah, you, have to declare, you have to declare that conflict when you're reviewing 2019's <laughs> albums. Mm. <laughs> oh, speaking yeah, about well. speaking about owls, by the way, has anybody seen that video that's been doing the rounds? Of baby owls. Yes. That look exactly like. Aliens. Aliens. Yeah, I have, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I have. Yeah, sorry, Clive, I have not had a chance to listen to it yet. I haven't had a spare it's minute. Fine. Now, I, I, I just expect it to crop up in your top five at the end of the year. Oh, yeah. right, okay. No Absolutely. Worries. So you, you don't need to listen to it before then. No, thank you. <laughs> Excellent. You're welcome. <laughs> well, I've listened to it and it's dead good. Um, okay. Get on, on it. On the box. That does, there's no box. The box doesn't exist. It's purely digital. Yeah. Because I care about the environment, guys. Mm. And so should you. Yeah. I'm looking at looking at all the other musicians. I'm I'm literally sat in front of about a thousand CDs. I know. That's, I'm mainly looking at you, Michael. Michael just hates the ocean and trees, <laughs> and he's a fascist. Uh, when think, my- if you think I'm going to turn off my Bitcoin mining operation to, <laughs> to bandwidth necessary to download an album, you're sadly mistaken. <laughs> when Michael dies and uh, his his album collection gets trashed, uh, he's the the ocean sea level is going to rise a lot. Wow. We're gonna, <laughs> nice, Holland is fucked. Nice my legacy. Michael. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, so the guilty. Let's have a goodbye from the don't guilty they, party. They float. That's a good point. Yeah, it still take up space though, right? Oh, I reckon yeah. a CD probably floats. All that plastic's floating. And if you put Not them the other way up, then so the shiny side was up, it would reflect the heat of the sun back into space. And <laughs> Maybe anything, this is the solution. He's doing us a favour if he were to release all of his albums into the sea now. <laughs> <laughs> we might be able to stop this irreversible damage. I can see how this, it, Michael. This, this could make a good documentary. <laughs> <laughs> what your CD? Just like yeah, just the existential you know crisis around it and everything. Yeah, if you yeah, yeah if you've got if you're trying to think of a re, trying to think of a way of getting rid of all your Smiths and Morrissey albums now, <laughs> probably the best way to do it. I think. I think so. Yeah. Cool. Well, Michael, you are heavily accused here, but perhaps I'll save you. Do you want to give us a good? A, do you want to give? Do you want to give us a goodbye? See ya, um, Dave Peeling. Like he just doesn't give a fuck. Would you like to give us a goodbye? So long, Clive Fisher. Would you like to give us a goodbye? Bye. And it, it's goodbye from me. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. Uh, see you next time. <laughs> Michael did. <laughs> what kill myself? <laughs> Stick around. Stick around. Stick around. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening. 
Rest assured that you have found The best podcast in the universe It's Stick Around Fascists are more likely to be eco-terrorists usually So I'm just I'm just breaking all the moulds here <laughs> Fascist trashists they call them <laughs> <laughs> Love it <laughs>